Welcome to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica, delving deep into his history and journey into the heart of the Australasian music industry, taking on the world with New Zealand band Mother Goose and his survival as a working drummer today. So Gary Spry's finally been able to see you and he loved you. And now you're off to Melbourne. We are indeed. And um, it was an interesting trip from the Gold Coast through to Melbourne. We basically just jumped in the cars, you know, on our final day. We left the Gold Coast and just drove and drove and drove and drove. How long did it take? Oh, hours. I don't know, 15 hours or something. I don't know. Did you stop? We stopped, but we didn't stop overnight. Because in Australia, those distances are enormous. You drive for miles. And us boys, we were from Dunedin. You know, you drive to Milton, you know, or to the Dunedin airport. Yeah. And that's like 30 kilometres. Then you start to get into the country. Yeah. But in Australia, it's not uncommon to drive four or five hours to do a gig and turn around and go straight home again. My good friend Matt, who lives in... um, Australia. He was moving from Melbourne to Perth. Yep. So he drove yep. Melbourne to Perth. Yeah. Oh, and he said it took forever. Yeah, well, it does. Well, our band, we drove from Brisbane to Perth for Ivan Damon, and that took two and a half days. And we just drove. We didn't stop anywhere overnight. We just yep. drove and drove and drove through the day, through the night, through the day, through the night. So that's what I'm saying about distances. Yeah. The distances were incredible. And so when we arrived in Melbourne, we'd driven a long way. We'd driven straight from the Gold Coast. And we arrived at one o'clock in the morning and we really had no idea where to go. And we asked somebody where the Moreland Hotel was, which was in Sydney Road, Brunswick. Luckily, we were only 15 or so minutes away from there. We had no idea where to go. But we finally found our motel and we crashed there for the night. And Melbourne, here we are because we were so excited to be there because Gary's was going to start looking after us in Melbourne. Cool. And that's exactly where the band wanted to be recording-wise. Yeah. So we were thrilled. So you had an official manager, I suppose, in Gary. Yep. He'd come on board. Yep. And you've just arrived in Melbourne. So what was the next move? Well, the next move was we stayed at the Moreland Hotel. It was in Brunswick. And we stayed there for, I think, about the first 10 days. I think we lived there. Yeah. And then Gary found us a place to live. And my memory is a little bit vague exactly on what that place was. I think it might have been, I know where we went. We went to a place called the, no, I can't tell you, Koala Motor Inn. It was the Koala Motor Inn in Melbourne. And overlooks Albert Park, which is now where the Formula One car racing is. Okay. So when the Melbourne has the Grand Prix, that's where it was, overlooking that area. And we stayed there for some months in a couple of apartments. And in that time, Gary started introducing us to the booking agency he wanted us to use and got us rehearsal space. And all of a sudden, the wheels were beginning to turn and introducing us here and introducing us there and then started playing us. So we started working and this was incredible. He had us working initially three gigs a day. I know, it was incredible. We were working... A lunchtime uni gig, an early support gig, and a late club gig. And what, these are all different places? Yeah, all in different venues in Melbourne. Right, yeah. But Gary had a nightclub called Babes, right on St Kilda Road, a very, very well-established 
nightclub that had a piano bar downstairs and also a, a big room for bands. And he launched us pretty much, even though we were working around other venues, he launched us at Babes. Cool. And he promoted us as this band from New Zealand. And of course, we were his band now playing in his club. Yeah. So he had a lot of clout. A lot of people came to see us as a result because, as I said, he had so much clout in the industry that he called a lot of industry people down yeah. to see us. And the booking agency was called Nucleus, run by Jeff Joseph. So they started booking us, and then we started meeting some Melbourne bands. We started playing with bands like Red House at places like the Croxton Park and the Matthew Flinders and places like that, right which means nothing to anybody. But at that time, they were really big band venues in Melbourne. Yeah. So Gary was spreading us out everywhere. And the gigs were good? The gigs were great, like it was at the Aranui, like it was at the Shoreline, yeah. and at the Glenfield Tavern in Auckland. Everywhere where we went, people just were blown away. Yeah. And I just say that because they'd never seen anything like us before. Yeah. So every new gig was a new chance to win over people yeah. and to get people on board because we were so different. Yeah. And it was just wonderful to sort of be working in Melbourne, just where we wanted to be. So did you, you didn't have to get day jobs or anything? You were like no, pretty sweet for just working and gigging? And well, we weren't earning a lot of money, of course, because we were unknown. Yeah. And we were just starting out in the industry in Melbourne. So no one had heard of us yeah, except right. for Gary's promotion and Nucleus promoting us. But the thing about those times, Harley, is that there were so many bands and so many gigs, there was so much work. I mean, look, we mm. were working three gigs a day. Yeah. Now, those gigs weren't big earners, but there was enough to keep us going. Yeah. Till we could afford, at one stage, three gigs was too much. We had to get some roadies. Who was paying for your hotel? Well, the band was. So we were earning, and we were paying from earnings. Right. You yeah. know? But that's how bands earned their living. There were so many bands, and you got paid. Yeah. Not like today. Now it's almost some venues it's pay to play. But back in those days, bands were the entertainment, so bands got paid for it. Of course, we weren't earning big money, but we were at least working enough to cover our costs. You're listening to Count Four and You're In, our father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica. Were you working on any original stuff, trying to record? or? Absolutely we were. The whole time about gigging around Melbourne was to get people win fans, yeah? Yeah. But at the same time, we were also trying to get a record deal. And so Gary was working hard with some various record companies. On the side, while we were working, he's busy trying to find us a record contract. Yeah. So we felt in pretty good hands in that way. So Gary had gone back to Mushroom Records, back to Michael Gadinsky, uh, who Craig went to see originally on his trip when he went with his little suitcase. The first time that we got introduced to the mushroom side of things was when the guys from Skyhooks came to see us. Now, Skyhooks at that time were Mushroom's biggest band. Yeah, They were enormous, and they today hold legendary status in Australia. Skyhooks were huge. Right, I've never yeah. heard of them. No, well, it's, I'm talking... Mid-70s. So Skyhooks were huge, and they came to see us, or most of the band came to see us that night. And they must have gone back to Gadinsky at some point and said, oh, I saw this, must have seen this band, and come back with some positive vibes. Yeah. Right. So when Gary, of course, had been fostering a relationship with Gadinsky, he did already know Gadinsky, 
So somehow or other, finally, we were invited to sign a record contract with Mushroom. That's epic. And it was epic because Mushroom had the biggest band in the country with Skyhooks. And they had a couple of other bands. And I think they had only recently signed Split Ends to Mushroom. We were just like over the moon. So what happens? Like, yeah, they say, oh, yes, we'll give you a record deal. Yeah. So what, you, you go and you'll go to the, I don't know, the company's office. Office, yep. yeah. Yep. And you'll go in there yep. and you'll sit down and, yep. and they, the guy explains <laughs> yep. what goes on yep. and... and yeah, so can you remember what was in the contract or what? I can't um, really remember what was in the contract, but we do. were given the contract, or Gary was given the contract. I think we were all given a copy of the contract beforehand so we could digest the contract to the before we signed. Yeah, right. And maybe Gary sent, gave it to a lawyer. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm sure he probably did. But as it turned out, we all agreed that the deal, so the record contract went like this. They were going to sign us for, uh, I think, two albums, with right. an option to sign us for a third album if they wanted to. So I think they were the main terms of the contract. That's pretty good. It is pretty good for an unknown band from Dunedin. Yeah. <laughs> we thought it was pretty good. So we were over the moon. So we ended up going to Gadinsky's office and Gadinsky had organised a photographer, you know, yeah. to come and take photos of us. Cool. And of the signing. So we all went to his office in our outfits. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah so we all dressed up in our stage costumes and yeah. took over his office, basically. Cool. And took photos. And from then, life changed. So after that moment, like, you've signed the contract and stuff, you would have left absolutely buzzing. Yep. So what, you go celebrate, go to a bar, oh, I go think, for, for I a th- night out? I or... think we definitely celebrated. Yeah. I think we definitely celebrated. But really, we also looked at it like that was only – the first step. It was yeah. a major step, but it was a first step. Yeah. And it, how can I put it? When I said life changed, life really did change because we were then moved from Nucleus, which was the booking agency that yeah. initially had us. We then moved to Premier Artists. And Premier Artists was not really part of Mushroom, but they were all interconnected. And Premier Artists was Australia's largest booking agency. So they booked all the biggest bands. And so we ended up signing with Premier Artists and then all of a sudden everything kind of changed. Mm. We got bigger gigs. Mm. We got bigger supports. Yeah. We, the money got improved. Yeah. They started working hard to to push us out into the bigger venues. Promotions. Promotions. Yeah. That was on a live basis, and then while that was going on live, so we were really happy about that, yeah, yeah. but also we then had to go and record an album. So, well, we had a bunch of songs that we'd been working on because we were always working on songs, yeah. even when we're on the Gold Coast. We were always working on new music. And we went into Armstrong Studios in Melbourne, okay, which is one of Melbourne's biggest recording complexes at the time. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, Daunting, but awesome, exciting. In one studio, Little River Band were recording at the time. Oh, yeah. So we were in a slightly smaller studio at Armstrong's. It was a famous place. A lot of people, famous names, international names and Australian names had recorded there. So we were stoked. So we were going into recording our very first album and after recording sessions, going out to gigs at night. Mm. So we'd record all day, go and play a gig and then come back to the studio after the gig at like midnight 
and sometimes go till two, three, four in the morning. Yeah. And we did that for, I don't know, two or three weeks. And did you have a specific number of songs that you had to have on your album or were you able to, to choose what you wanted? I think from memory, we had a bunch of songs which I think got whittled down to nine. We'd worked on nine tracks and had them as ready as we could. Yeah. We went into a rehearsal studio before we recorded the album, which is what we call pre-production. Yeah. So we went in and we worked up a lot of the songs before we went into the studio yeah. so that when you're in the studio, you're not wasting time learning music. Yeah, right. You're there to record the tracks. Yeah. And you can still make it, tweak a few changes, but... What was the name of your first album? Well, we just thought we should call the album Stuffed, like a stuffed goose. Or you could say, get stuffed to someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you say, the whole world's stuffed. Mother Goose, Stuffed, we thought was a perfect yeah. name to start that It is a cool off. name. I like it. I like <laughs> it. And if anyone's seen the, the Stuffed album or, or vinyl cover, the artwork is pretty cool. The artwork is amazing. There's a lot going on and it, it looks fun. How did you come up with that idea or did you have someone create that for you or like what was the sort of vibe? Okay, good question. I just can't remember whose idea the actual front cover was. Yeah. I've got a funny feeling it might have been Stephen Craig's to destroy paintings in an art gallery. Yeah, well, there's Mona you know, Lisa on there. There's Mona Lisa, yeah. yeah. I think that was the idea. But there was a Melbourne artist called Kim Fazy and he was... I think recommended to us by Mushroom yeah, to do that artwork. And he did an amazing job. He was an artist. And I think it was his idea to do stories. When you, when you open the, the fold out album, the vinyl version, when you open it, there's all these pictures of every song. There's a little cartoon drawing of every song. Yeah. And it's really, really stylish. And it was really stylish at the time. That's cool. I, I like it. It is cool. And it's very, very different. You're listening to Count Four and You're In, our father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer, Marcel Rodica. Right, Dad, what was it like recording your drums in a big flash studio? <laughs> uh, a bit scary at first, I have to say. So I set up my drums, my Black Panther Ludwigs, with no bottom heads, and I felt like I wanted something else. And I remember saying to her, Ross Cockle was the engineer, and he was a young engineer at, at Armstrong's, really lovely guy. He engineered the album, the whole album. And I remember saying to Ross, I just want another drum. Are there any other drums lying around? So he found me this, I think, two smaller drums, like an 8-inch yeah. and a 10-inch time on a stand, and I added those to the kit for a little bit more colour. I have to tell you something, though. To make the drums more dead sounding, we added gaffer tape. Right. Now, in the 70s, this is what I have to tell you. Yeah. In the 70s, the production techniques were all about drums sounding really kind of dead. Yeah. So if you go back to some 70s records, even famous big 70s albums, you'll find that a lot of the production techniques, the drums sounded a bit like cardboard boxes. Mm, right. So when you hit a tom, they sounded quite dead. Yeah. And the techniques in those days was to make the drums not ring. Of course, yeah. drums resonate. When you strike the top head, the air pushes through to the bottom head and the drum resonates. It yeah? The other, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But in the 70s, the technique seemed to be to want to kill that. So everything was gaffer taped. So I've got pictures of my drum kit in that studio. And there's gaffer tape all over the skins <laughs> yeah. to kind of deaden them. Well, I remember you doing that growing up when we were kids. 
and you would play at a gig and would see your drum kit. It always had a bit of gaffer tape. I know, I know. And nowadays, drum engineers realise that drums are drums. They're meant to resonate. Yeah. You're meant to hear them sing. So having my drums taped was kind of normal, but it was kind of strange. And they kind of sounded a bit like boxes, yeah. I believe. But it was an exciting time. And of course, the thing about recording in a big studio like that is that you have to get it right. Yeah. Like... Today's cut and paste world on a computer, mm. go into a studio and people are using Pro Tools. If that bass drum beat is out slightly, I'll just drag it this way and tidy it up. Yeah. But in our day, if I made a mistake halfway through the song while we were recording, yeah. we'd have to start and re-record it yeah. again. Because I was going to say, did you record your drums on your own or mm. did you all play it at one go? We all played together as a band and sometimes... If the keyboard player or if Steve or, or Pete made a mistake, they can always come back and redo that. Because at the end of the day, you're looking for a good drum track. Yeah. The very first thing in a recording studio, studio what everybody wants is a really good drum track. Yeah. Once the drums are stable and intact and everyone's happy with the drums, yeah. then you can start layering the other things on top. So that's what most people start with even today. You were to go and write a song. Yep. You would start with someone laying a drum beat. Yeah, you may still all play together, Yeah, but at the end of the day, the thing that everyone is looking for, first and foremost, is the bed of the song, yep. is the foundation of the song, is the drum track. Right. And if other things need to be tweaked and replaced, then you can just layer the song from the drum track. So pressure was on me to keep making sure that I played everything in time and everything was in the right place. That was a bit scary for a bit. You've been listening to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast where Harley Rodiker chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodiker. Listen out for the next episode. This podcast series is engineered and produced by Barry McConaughey in Dunedin, New Zealand. Hold up. 